Well, as Mark mentioned, we are back in the letter of James. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. It's on towards the end of the New Testament, just a few books back from the end. And James is just by way of reintroduction, since it's been more than six months since we've been here. James is a, a letter written by the brother of Jesus. And if you know your New Testament, you'll remember that Jesus's own family in his own in his lifetime thought that he had lost his mind. They thought that he was a crazy person. Um, and they actually tried to collect him at one point. We read about that in the Gospels. They want to draw him back in. But now, as, as we read this letter, we realize James, this physical brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, has encountered some sort of spiritual transformation. And what we read, actually, outside the page of the New Testament is that he became the leader of the church. James became the leader of the early church. He, he became a spiritual man, transformed by Jesus himself, the Jesus he formerly uh, tried to stop he now uh, preaches. And so as we come to James's letter, we find a, a lot of very direct and practical guidance. James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. He gets into your kitchen. <laughs> he, wants to, he wants to come into your life right where you are and talk to you about your life. Here's a man who's been transformed by Jesus, and he wants us to be transformed as well. So we're in chapter 3. This week, James chapter 3, right at the beginning, if you have your Bibles. And uh, like I said, James begins with a very practical admonition. Uh, some of you will know this past season in our lives, in, in our country, has been called the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation. People all over the country leaving one job and starting a new job, resigning from their current position and looking for a, a new place of work, sometimes a new career entirely. And this is true for pastors as well. Uh, estimates vary, but even the most conservative estimate is that uh, th this past season has seen twice as many pastors leave the ministry as in previous seasons. This is not a resignation sermon, just so you know. The extremely divided nature of American culture and politics has come into the church and made ministry very difficult. And the, the things that pastors have had to endure have driven many, many uh, men out of the ministry. And actually, thousands of churches have shut their doors in this last season. Very sad. But something I think that's even more difficult than what we've experienced in this past season is what James says right here. His words are some of the most challenging to anyone who picks up the Bible and intends to teach it. Read with me, James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who, will, we, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. We learn a lesson here that we learn elsewhere in Scripture. God cares about our words. God cares about our words. Your words matter, and they actually have eternal impact in your own life and in the lives of others. And what James is teaching us here is that we must control our speech. 
For this reason, we must control our speech. We'll come back to this passage later, but Jesus says in Matthew 12 that every last word we speak, every careless word, he says, that comes out of our mouths will be brought up on the day of judgment and will be used to judge our lives. No word that you speak will be forgotten in God's judgment. And this is all the more true, James says, for those who intend to teach. Teaching is a mainly speaking vocation. Those who teach must speak out loud. And for this reason, James says, those who teach are opening themselves to greater judgment. God is going to hold teachers, in particular, accountable for the words that they speak. God loves his church. He cares about you, brothers and sisters. This is his beloved flock right here. And because God loves the church, he wants those who lead the church to be very careful with their words. So James's main point here is control your speech. But I do want to point out something, even as I'm beginning where James begins with this emphasis on teachers, the, the point here is not mainly, it's not mainly a passage to teachers. Do you, do you see who James is addressing? He says, he's speaking to the congregation. Not many of you, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, should become teachers. Not many of you, church, should become teachers because this warning, this threat of judgment is very real. God loves the church. Every word's going to be judged. And for those who teach, we actually have a greater accountability before God. So no one should rush into the position of teaching. We don't know why James says this. He doesn't really bring up teachers anywhere else in the letter. But we can guess, because we see elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus warns his own disciples, don't, don't accept the, 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 the title of rabbi. Don't let anybody call you teacher. Because th- these people just love honor. They, they just, they just want to be called by the name of rabbi or teacher in the public places. They love the honor that comes with it. So in the early church, the more public place of teacher apparently had some sort of greater importance. It was more visible, and so people tended to value it more. And James is warning those who t- uh, the whole congregation. He's warning the whole congregation, don't rush into this position. Just because there's some attraction to it, you should actually be all the slower to go into it because this, this position uh, will expose you to greater judgment before God. He says, his exact words here are, we will receive a greater judgment. We who teach will receive a greater judgment. But the words and what he's going to teach us here in this passage apply to the whole congregation. He's, he's, this is just his stepping off point. Don't rush into teaching. We'll look at perhaps some reasons that he says that later. But let me read this passage and then we'll look at it together. James chapter 1. Excuse me, James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. 
and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole world, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We'll stop there. This is God's word. And what we see in this passage is that James uh, builds, he structures his teaching around five main metaphors. And these metaphors then uh, are each followed by one application or a point that he makes. The tongue, he says, is like a bit in a horse's mouth. It's like a rudder. It's like a fire. It's like a wild beast. It's like a type of tree or a spring. And we're going to look at these five points and, and structure our, our morning around them as we consider them and then apply them to our own lives. So the first thing we see here, the first metaphor James uses is like a bit in a horse's mouth. If you can control your speech, you can have complete control, complete self-control. In verse 2, I, I read this at the very beginning. This is part of James's warning about why not many should become teachers. He says, we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. And I think we often say something similar in our own culture. Oh, you know, everybody, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, it's, it's just part of life. Um, but I think James is saying something different here, something slightly different. And the important difference is this. He's not just dismissing this sin. He's not just excusing it. When he says we all stumble in many ways, he's acknowledging that sin is a universal experience, but he's also drawing our attention to it, not to, not to, to minimize it, but to maximize it so that we realize every one of us falls short before God. Often uh, when we say this, we're excusing it, but James's point is different. Sin is a universal experience, and he gets more specific. The most difficult sins to get rid of, he says, are sins of speech. You see that in the second half of verse 2? He makes this, I think, shocking statement. It's, it's supposed to shock us. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Now, this might seem like an overstatement, it's, it's pretty strong. It sounds almost blasphemous, right? A perfect person. Does the Bible teach that, really? Uh, first, I think it's important that we remem remember what he just said at the beginning of this verse. We all stumble in many ways. And that phrase, uh, we all stumble in many ways, that we all is explicit. He means every last one of us stumbles in specific ways. So he explicitly says every one of us sins. But secondly, this word for perfect here means something like complete or mature. And if you remember all the way back when we started the book of James, James uses this same word at the beginning of, of the book. He says that 
God's purposes in our lives, the suffering that we endure, is actually intentional. It's meant to train us, to test our faith so that we become perfect. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he talks about that. The word can also be translated mature or complete. And that's probably more helpful for us if you get hung up on the idea of perfection. His point is, if you're able to control your speech, you're able to reach the, the, the highest level, the most complete level of personal maturity. Our speech, in fact, is the most difficult thing in our lives to control. The point James is making is the person who has learned to control their speech has arrived at true Christian maturity. Not sinlessness, as he said at the beginning of the verse, uh, but the highest level of self-control. The remainder of verse 2 says that the person who controls their speech has self-control over their whole body. He uses that phrase, whole body, and he's going to use that again in the metaphor about controlling a horse's whole body. This person has self-control over all their actions because controlling speech is the most difficult and also the most central part of self-control. So let me turn to that metaphor briefly. Just, J- James says, just like a bit controls a horse's entire body, so the person who controls their speech then is able to control the whole course of their life. Uh, a bit uh, Forgive me if it's pedantic, but a bit is the piece of metal that goes in a horse's mouth. It's connected to the reins, and when the rider pulls back, the horse goes whichever direction the rider wants him to go. So that bit allows control of this giant horse. The whole horse is controlled by that one simple bit. And so also, James says, our speech is right at the center of self-control. Our speech is right at the center of self-control. And I think the point he's making is that because sins of speech are so common, they're so difficult to avoid, controlling our words allows perfect self-control or complete self-control, maybe we can say. This is a point I think we might stumble at. If I had asked you when you came in, what's the most important part of self-control? how many of you would have said words? I'm not sure we would have said that. Think about your own uh, beginning of the year um, resolutions that you make, right? We make resolutions at the beginning of the year. Usually we say, hey, I'm going to turn my whole life around. I'm going to learn self-discipline. And I'm going to... We try and pick that one that's at the top of the list, the one that we think is the top of the pyramid from which everything else descends. I'm going to get up earlier and... Uh, do physical exercise in the morning. I'm going to take control of my diet finally. Well, James says, actually, those aren't the pinnacle. The pinnacle is your own words. Your own words are the most difficult to control. We all stumble in many ways, but if anybody can control their speech, they have learned this completeness of maturity, this highest form of self-control. Brothers and sisters, Do you want to grow in self-control? This is where you should start. This is where you should start. Look at your own words. Look at your speech. We must control our words because, James says, sins of speech are so common. How often do you evaluate your words from God's perspective? 
Many of us do this thing. You replay a conversation after you've had it, right? You go back over it again and again. Oh, I wish I would have said this differently. Oh, it could have been more persuasive. Oh, I should not have spoken that. But do you replay your conversations in the piercing light of God's counsel? That's where we should evaluate them. This is what self-control comes from. Self-control comes from saying, what does God want from my speech? What does God want from your speech? If you can grow in that, James says, you can grow into mature Christianity, into greater self-control. The standard we should judge our, our words by is God's word. What does he say must be avoided? What does he say we must speak, we must do? His judgments should be the judgment that we use for our own words. But don't lose heart. We are not fighting alone. Each person uh, here must, must indeed obey this command, but you're not working by yourself. I love the example that we have in Scripture. For instance, Psalm 141, uh, the first few verses, we have this desperate prayer from David. Psalm 141, if you want to turn there. And the first thing that he prays for is help with his words. Psalm 141, starting in verse 1, David says, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And then he says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. When David turns to the Lord for help, he begins his prayer by asking for control of his own words. We must control our words because sins of speech are so common. That's the first thing we see here. Secondly, James uh, turns to another, uh, another metaphor. And in this section and the next two that follow it, he actually leads with the metaphor here. He says, like the rudder of a ship, words seem insignificant but they affect the outcome of our entire lives. Like the rudder of a ship, words seem insignificant, but they affect the outcome of your whole life. In this section, uh, James leads with this metaphor, and he compares, our, he compares our words to the rudder of a ship. Here's a picture of a ship. Uh, even in the ancient world, shipbuilding was already quite advanced. Uh, the Phoenician people who lived right next door to the to the, uh, to the to the Israelites, they were kind of right along the Mediterranean coast, west of Israel there, were renowned for their shipbuilding. They could build ships sort of like this. This is actually a Persian ship, but well, I don't know the difference. It's huge. That's the point that James is making. Even in this first century setting, James says, look at the size of these ships. And we read in Acts 27, Paul was on a ship with upwards of 200 people. Uh, ships could be very significantly sized, even in the first century. Uh, and James, is, uh, James goes on to point out not just the size of the ship, but the strength of the winds that blow them. He says that the, these winds that guide the ships are extremely strong. Uh, anybody who's been watching the news knows that uh, strong winds happen frequently, like we just saw off of our own uh, eastern coast. These, these winds that blow the ships are extremely powerful. And yet for all that, James says, it's just one tiny rudder that controls the direction of the ship. Ancient 
ships here have this uh, tiny little rudder. There's, it's not the same way that we think of it, kind of underneath the water there, but it's this oar that hangs off the side. The point is, it's little, and it controls the, the whole entire ship, and it controls this boat that's blown by these strong winds. So also our words, seemingly insignificant, control the outcome of our lives. They seem little, but they affect the direction of your whole life. We tend to think of words as relatively small, don't we? What I say today is passing. Do you remember it tomorrow? Do I remember it tomorrow? Um, these, these seem like passing things, right? The, the text messages that you got uh, last week, they've already scrolled off the screen, right? <laughs> uh, words, they appear insignificant to us, and yet, and yet they do direct the whole course of our lives like one tiny rudder steering an entire large ship. So a few small words can change the course of our entire lives in one direction or another. This is true for individuals, and it's true for nations. The point here is the power of words. Little words have big effects, long-lasting effects. We must control our words because speech, sins of speech, are so influential, so powerful their long-term effects. That's the second thing that we see here. The third thing we see, this next illustration James chooses, is one that most of us are familiar with, especially having lived here, if you've lived here for any amount of time. Like a small fire burns up a giant forest, sinful speech can destroy entire lives. Anyone who's lived through a summer in New Mexico knows this, right? Uh, the rains go away, the, the, the forests dry out. We see the tape around our uh, trailheads here. They won't let us go out into the, into the trails because when our state gets dry, the, just a little flick of a cigarette out the window or one campfire that's not entirely put out can start a whole forest on fire. The smallest little fire can cause, the, the, the smallest little spark can cause, cause the largest fire. And so also a few uncontrolled words can cause a raging inferno in our lives. No doubt some of you have seen this in the workplace, in the family, broken relationships, people don't talk to each other anymore, in a community. The most uh, experienced wildfire firefighters uh, have this happen as well. We remember the sad story of those firefighters from Arizona who were lost when the fire turned on them suddenly. The winds turn, and these guys who have such experience uh, are, are totally caught off guard. A fire, a forest fire, rages out of control, and it begins with the smallest little spark, James says. The destruction caused by unguarded speech can get entirely out of control. Uh, I think of the Arab Spring in the, the early 2000s, 2010 and following we saw all of North Africa and much of the Middle East engulfed in chaos. Three major countries lost their heads of state, long-standing heads of state, Tunisia, and then Egypt, and then Libya. These guys were ousted mostly because of words spread on social media. The Arab Spring began in surprisingly small ways, and yet... Yet it burned out of control and caused significant chaos that is still ongoing, for instance, in Syria. The power of words should not be underestimated, James says. Uh, closer to home, 
whole churches can be destroyed by sinful speech. That's got to be what James is thinking of here. Uh, we read, for instance, in First and Second Corinthians, Paul now is talking to a church there or a set of churches that are totally divided. And interestingly, they're divided because they say, well, I follow this teacher or I follow that teacher. It's just a bunch of words, apparently. It's just a bunch of words. And yet these people are dishonoring the name of Christ. Paul writes them and says, this is not the way that you should live, brothers and sisters. These churches are being divided, torn up by words, unguarded speech. Probably something similar is what James has in mind here when he writes, not many of you should become teachers. These words can cause infighting. They can destroy churches and they can destroy church members. In the very next chapter, James is going to go on to talk about quarreling. He says, what, what, what is the cause? What's the underlying roots of these quarrels that are springing up among you, brothers and sisters? He, he's talking about serious division in this church, just like we see in the church in Corinth. And what we realize is that a few careless words can burn up a whole church, and it can also destroy the lives of many people. Think, for instance, many of you will know of people who have walked away from the faith deconstructed because they say church is a bunch of hypocrites yeah i've been with those christians i know what they say <laughs> i know their public persona and their private persona and they don't match up many people turn from christ because they've been hurt by the church and brothers and sisters we are the church the church is us our words are the words that matter we must control our words because sins of speech are so destructive. We must control our words because sins of speech are so destructive, like a, a wildfire burning out of control. And I, I think here of the, the closing words in C.S. Lewis's, uh, in his, his uh, sermon, the, the Weight of Glory. If you've ever read that, uh, it's the weirdest sermon you'll ever read, for starters. Uh, it's a great essay. It would have been odd to preach. Uh, but he talks about the, the weight of glory. And one of the things he says on towards the end of this sermon is when you, uh, when you deal with fellow individuals, we're not just playing with mortals. We're not just dealing with people who you can uh, snub and, and it doesn't matter at all. He says we are dealing at every moment with immortal beings. And I love this line. He says, if you were to meet one of these people, one of us, uh, in our future state, whatever we will become after the day of judgment. If you were to meet one of them today in some quiet place by accident, he said you would either be tempted to bow down in worship because this creature would seem so great or to flee in terror because what they have become is so terrible. We are always dealing with immortals. And your words, brothers and sisters, your words have eternal impact on yourself, and on the people around you. Your words matter. They can be incredibly destructive, as James is warning here. He goes on in verse 6 to draw out the metaphor a little further. He says, the tongue stains the whole body. Sins of speech have a polluting effect on the entirety of our lives. Just like one drop of sewage into a whole water tank makes it undrinkable. So also a few ill-chosen words can destroy an, an entire life, 
your own or someone else's. Uh, Augustine said, uh, the forest that burns up by these little sparks, he said, the forest that burns up is your good works. A whole life of good works can be destroyed by these hypocritical, backstabbing, sinful words. And I, I, I don't think he means, and I don't think it's true that that means your good works don't matter to God, but it does mean that they'll just be blotted out in the eyes of others. It doesn't matter what you do. If you speak these contrary words, sinful words, that, that totally disagree with the rest of your life. So be warned, little speech can pollute great things. And then James gives the root of the problem. He says, the little fire, that is the tongue, burns because it's set on fire by the power of hell. The power of hell, the word he uses here is Gehenna. Many of your Bibles will footnote that. That's Jesus' word for, for hell. We don't find that outside of the Gospels. James is picking up Jesus' language. Paul likes to use Greek language for it. But Gehenna was this valley outside Jerusalem where they burned their trash and where the Israelites used to burn their children as well. It's a terrible place. It's a terrible place. It was a place of idolatry, of godlessness, and it represented to the Jewish mind everything evil, everything terrible about the world. James says that's where sinful speech comes from. It comes from this power of evil that is around us. It's influenced by hell itself. We have uh, an example of this again in Jesus' words to Peter. Uh, Immediately after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, you remember this in Matthew 16, Jesus says, who who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, we know. We know who you are. You are the Messiah. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. And you know what? My job is to die. I'm actually going to go to Jerusalem and and be killed by the leaders there. And Peter takes him aside and says, Jesus, (laughs) wrong. That's not the Messiah's work. And Jesus turns to Peter, it says, and says, get behind me, Satan, Get behind me, Satan, because you don't have the things of God in mind. You are not setting your mind on the purposes of God. This is an example of hell-like speech, speech that is, that is combusted, that, is, uh, that begins with the power of hell. It's not thinking about the purposes of God. And that seems, perhaps to us, you know, Peter's words were at least well-intentioned, right? He thought he was doing what was good. But the point is, he's not judging them according to God's purposes. Our words must be judged according to God's word. They have to be shaped and formed according to God's purposes, not just good intentions of our own. Brothers and sisters, go to God's word. We must control our own speech because it's so destructive. And the way that we avoid that sort of hell bound speech, that, that hell-fired speech, the sort of speech that Jesus turns aside is by, uh, by shaping it according to God's word, conforming it there. We see examples of this sort of burning all around us, right? Uh, people who ruin their whole life because they just, they just won't stop speaking, <laughs> They just won't stop speaking. The Proverbs are, are, are actually replete with this same warning. Even a, even a foolish person appears wise, they just keep their mouth shut. Uh, the, the warnings all throughout Scripture are oftentimes we're better just not talking 
because we are so uh, prone to destroy with our words. Think of the student who just yells at their teacher (laughs) and causes this problem. Think of uh, the parent who says hurtful things to their child. Some of you in this room have had that experience. You're now grown adults and you still remember the words spoken to you by your parents. They continue to have long-lasting effects. Brothers and sisters, be warned. Be warned. Your own words last far longer than you expect and they can burn absolutely out of control. Little words have a big impact. They can be very destructive. The fourth thing we see here is that like taming a wild beast, the tongue is, frankly, difficult to control. It's difficult to control. James chooses this image of beasts. He says humankind has been in the process of taming all kinds of animals. And he gives this list of animals that echoes Genesis chapter 1, where we see God tells people, hey, I want you to, to rule over the world including animal kind. I want you to to tame them, domesticate them, take control of this place. And humanity has been in the process of doing that, taming all sorts of animals ever since then. If you've ever seen a raging elephant, you know, they're terrifying. But the great general Hannibal, several centuries before the time of Christ, got control of quite a number of elephants, 40 or so, tamed them and brought them across from North Africa up into Italy and used them in his attack on Rome. Some of the most incredible animals have been tamed by humanity. And yet, we can't tame the tongue. We can't tame the tongue. The tongue is even more difficult to tame than a wild beast. James says, basically, it can't be tamed. He describes it as a restless evil. As soon as you think you've got it under control, it breaks out again. As soon as you've, as you've controlled yourself in one area, one day, the very next, you're tempted, again, to say things you ought not. It is the tongue is not simply brought under control once and then never worried about again. Unlike wild beasts where we can do that, the tongue continues to break out again and again. The Christian who wants to control their speech must therefore be constantly vigilant. You must always be on the lookout. There is no time where you get to say, I've done enough, I'm going to rest from controlling my speech now. We must always be careful to watch over our internal thoughts and feelings. James says that's the basis of everything that we say. Evil comes from within us, from our own desires. It arises there. And so we have to be watching inwardly guarding ourselves, realizing that this speech will break out again and again. Your own words, brothers and sisters, are always ready to break loose. You must maintain constant vigilance to avoid sins of speech. Control of our own speech is extremely difficult, so it requires constant vigilance. James's closing words in verse 8 are that the tongue is like a deadly poison when a viper bites its victim. Some of you may know this. Uh, That poison goes into the body, and it's painful at first. You have a swelling, but if it's left untreated, what it does is it actually begins to destroy, degrade the blood vessels within the body, and you bleed out internally, and your body can't uh, clot properly. So also, words have this long-term effect. They may appear 
harmless at first, but in the long run, these words cause such great destruction. Long, slow destruction. Many of us can think of words spoken a long time ago, perhaps a coach who insulted you. Again, we see the poison of these things sticks with us for so long. And so James's warning to us is, be careful, brothers and sisters. We must control our own words. We must control our own words because the tongue is so difficult to contain, because it's so difficult to tame, and it has this long, slow, poisonous afterlife. That's the fourth thing we see. The fifth thing we see is that like a tree producing a certain kind of fruit, Christians are transformed. Christians are transformed to produce a certain kind of speech. In this final section, James gives an example of this restless speech. He said that the tongue is restless like a wild animal that you can't cage, you can't keep in control. And he gives this example. He says it's like a Christian who on one hand gives thanks to God and then turns around and curses another person, curses another person made in God's image. The word here for curse doesn't mean what we sometimes mean by that word, not like a you know, specific list of bad words, don't say this, don't say that, don't say that, like we teach our children. Uh, although no doubt that sort of language is in view here. James's uh, idea, the, the ancient idea of a curse, is just asking God, will you cut this person off? Will you not bless them anymore? Will you condemn them and forget about this person and not listen to their requests and pleas anymore? I want that person to be gone. Just get rid of them. James says you can't do that. That's utterly contradictory to giving thanks to God on the one hand and then turning around and looking at this person who's made in God's image and asking for them to be destroyed. Again, he uses language directly from Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, in the creation account, we read that the reason that people matter The reason people are differentiated from the animals is because we're made in God's image. We uniquely reflect the character of God. Brothers and sisters, you are worshiping creatures. You're made different from the animals around you. And so, James says, and so, you can't just snub people. You cannot, you cannot curse people. Because what you say to a fellow human, you're saying in essence to God. You're saying that to God because this person reflects his character. And he he doesn't say to fellow Christians. He says to any other person, every person, no matter how lost, is made in the image of God and deserves a form of respect from us, respect that, that goes all the way to our words. You cannot curse a fellow person, no matter who they are, because in so doing, you're reflecting back on their creator, the one whose image they are made in. James likens this sort of thing to a spring that produces salty and drinkable water. Uh, the, the undrinkable water would pollute the drinkable water. If one, one spring produces this kind of water, if, if they both come out into the same place, the, the sweet water will be destroyed. It's totally useless because of the, the bitter water that comes along with it. So also, blessing and cursing. Blessing would destroy the good effects of, excuse me, cursing would destroy the good effects of blessing. Even more to the point, though, I think, is this tree analogy that James draws out here. Trees only produce one kind of fruit. Figs produce figs. Grapes only come from vines, etc. This is an illustration we know that James draws directly from Jesus. 
If you're familiar with the words of Jesus, we recall this sort of thing. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, he's speaking to the, to the, to the teachers, the religious leaders of his day, and he says, listen, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus says several things here. He ends there where we've talked about before. Your words have eternal value. And God will bring them up again in the day of judgment. Every careless word that you've spoken. But also, he points out that the cause of good speech is a good heart. The reason that someone says things that are right, that honor God, is because they've been transformed internally. It's as if you've taken this tree that was a, a, a thorn bush and now you've you've actually changed it not merely grafted onto it you've changed the very nature of the tree so that now it's a, a, an apple tree it produces apples whereas you couldn't have possibly done that before jesus says you have to get into the heart of someone in order to change them so that what comes out of them is good and james picks up this metaphor and reminds the churches that he's been writing to if you have believed in Jesus, you have been transformed. This fundamental change has taken place in you. You are like a different species of tree. You will now, by nature, produce something different because you've been transformed. And that difference should be visible in your speech. It should be visible in your speech. I'm going to take the liberty of reminding us what James's hearers would have immediately thought of. Uh, as they're reading this letter, they would think back to chapter 1, verse 18. You can turn there. It's just one page back where James says, of his own will, speaking of God, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This word brought us forth. It's birth language. James says, it's as if God has given you an entirely new birth. You have been born again, to use Jesus' language. And just like Jesus said that that person who's born again is now a different, a different kind of person, so also James says in chapter 1, verse 18, it's by the word of truth that you have had this new birth experience. It's because of what we call the gospel. The gospel is this word of truth, a truth about God. And the truth is this. It's what we read about earlier in Luke 23. God broke into our world. He came to us when we were separated from him. We were far off by our own words and actions. We had destroyed the world. We had destroyed everything around us. All people lived in separation from God. And God came to us in our brokenness, in the person of Jesus. He came to give his life for us. He came to lay his life down for us. Jesus, who was made in our image, in the image of humanity, came to fix what we, the image bearers of God, had broken. God's own son became man. He lived among us. You know what we did? 
We cursed him. (laughs) And they got their way, too. They cut him off from the land of the living. Jesus himself was put to death at the will of his own people. But he was cursed for us. In the Old Testament, we read that anyone who's hung on a tree receives a curse, Deuteronomy 21. Jesus took the curse that we should have received. God's curse was on us. That is, everyone who sins will die, not just physically, but eternally. The separation from God leads into an eternal death, a death that lasts beyond this life, a separation from God. But Jesus took this curse for us so that anyone who places their trust in him can be forgiven for that sin, can be renewed. Jesus became a curse for us so that our curses would be forgiven, so that we could be, first, freed from punishment, and secondly, freed from the power of sin. In this case, from the power of a restless, poisonous tongue that acts like a burning fire, transformed so that you don't live under that power anymore. And when James says in 118 that of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth, he's saying, he's saying, it's the truth that did this to you. It's this word of truth that did it for you. Brothers, sisters, what do we do with the word? When we're not speaking, we listen to it. When the word is God's, you listen. You don't act. You don't do anything. You just receive. That's James's point here. God's word came to you. It came into your ears. It came into your hearts. And it renewed you. You didn't do anything to earn this. God came and he transformed you. He forgave your sin. And he set you on this. He's created this new species within us, if you will. The the Christians sometimes called themselves a third way. They weren't like pagans and they weren't like Jews. Something different happened. (laughs) That's what God's done to us. He's made us a new species so that you are transformed to produce a new kind of fruit. But apparently, this new fruit doesn't produce itself automatically, apart from any effort on our own. It's true, brothers and sisters. You're a new kind of creation. You're a new species of person that now produces good fruit, but it also requires your effort at this point. God has done something you couldn't do, so now we in turn turn back to him and we just we ponder what he's done. Look, for instance, at James chapter 2, 13. James, this is kind of, I think, the heart of chapter 2 for James. He says, judgment, 2, 13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. He's warning the Christians, hey, listen, If you are the kind of person who lives with a judgmental spirit, you're going to receive judgment. But he follows that up by saying, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And he means God's mercy. In the same way that God's mercy has triumphed over the judgment that we deserve, so also this creates a a new kind of person in us, a person who's not just critical all the time. Do you find yourself constantly pointing out other people's problems? If you're a Christian, you are renewed. But you must grow into this new kind of fruit that God calls us to bear. 
you produce it by work on your behalf. You must grow into this. So yes, you're new. Yes, the species has changed. And yet, there's also a call to you to now grow into this new kind of speech. We must control our words, James says, because sins of speech are contrary to the gospel. And the kind of speech he wants us to put on is speech that reflects the mercy we have received. Mercy in Christ, the one who came and was cursed for us so that we could become something new, eternal creatures of blessing with God. Let me pray for us. Father, we long for your help in this. On the one hand, we know that you've made us new in Christ, and we know that you did something to us we couldn't do ourselves. And so we thank you for that. And on the other hand, we find within ourselves that our tongues defy taming. (laughs) They're difficult to control. So please help us, Father, we ask. Help us to meditate on the mercy we received in Christ, on the word of truth that has brought this new life into our lives. And we pray, help us to take seriously our own words. Help us to judge ourselves now so that we are not judged in the future. And help us to control our speech so that we will speak in a way that aligns with the gospel, aligns with your truth. We pray for this help because we know that you listen to us. In Jesus' name, amen.